everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago uh, with my co-host Rob Hunt today from California. Uh, our other co-host Jim Marty is taking the day off as he is busy traveling. We hope he travels safe, and we will look forward to speaking with him next week. Uh, this is a great show, folks. We've got great, great stuff to talk about today, some big happenings in the uh, marijuana and hemp world, which we'll be leading off with. Uh, but today, the day that you're listening to the show, if you're listening to the date that this is dropped on November 15th, is a very, very significant day in Grateful Dead history uh, as it marks the uh, anniversary of the release of one of the most famous Grateful Dead albums of all time, Shakedown Street. But 43 years ago, the age of Disco Dead was born, and uh, we will be doing a deep dive into Shakedown Street, uh, how it was produced, how it all came together, uh, who played a role in it, because there's some uh, big names in the rock and roll world involved with Shakedown Street, and ultimately the impact that it had on the band and uh, uh, the Deadheads and all of that. And then uh, we will also, because we're big on these kind of things today, uh, November 15th marks the 50th anniversary of the Grateful Dead's performance in Austin, Texas. Uh, it's a show that's been released by the Grateful Dead as part of their Road Trips series, Volume 3, Number 2, from November 15th, 1971 in Austin. Uh, there's a great story about why the Dead didn't ever want to play in Texas, but finally agreed that they would come and play in Austin. Uh, it's an amazing show. Uh, but it's got some really, really great points uh, on there that we will be talking about and listening to as we go ahead today. But uh, let's dive into this uh, cannabis stuff first because there's some really interesting stuff going on here. Rob, how are you doing today? I'm great, Larry. There's so much to go through today. And obviously, I love discussing Shakedown Street because I'm, I'm a big fan of the Disco Dead era and a uh, huge fan of a lot of the songs on that album. So it had some misses, but it also had some uh, some ones that I love uh, listening to to this day and uh, super fired up about the, uh, the uh, 71 show as well. But let's, let's talk canvas to start with because there is a lot to get through. Absolutely. So uh, recently we had the DEA issue a letter to uh, the Alabama Board of Pharmacy in Birmingham, Alabama, asking a question. And the question basically was, is Delta-8 considered a controlled substance and is it subject to the provisions of the Controlled Substance Act? The interesting thing is both the fact that Alabama is asking the question, I suppose, although maybe we shouldn't be surprised it's Alabama asking the question, but the response that's given to the question by uh, Terrence L. Booz uh, from the Drum and Chemical Evaluation Section, the Division of the Diversion Control Division, uh, is very interesting. Uh, Rob, can you kind of set the background for this for us? Yeah, I sure can. Going back about a year, on August 21st of 2020, the Drug Enforcement Agency came out with an uh, interim final rule, which is you know not law, but it was asking for an interpretation on certain things, and they uh, made a, um, an interpretation on, on four different points. But one of them was, with respect to, uh, to, you know, what is legal coming out of the Farm Bill. And the position they took at the time is, you know, 
that uh, Delta-8 and Delta-9 uh, THC are still illegal as per you know, the letter of the, uh, the law, and they're still considered to be um, you know, part of the tetrahydrocannabinol family that would be THC and still illegal under the Controlled Substances Act. And this is before you know, D8 was really, really popular. So for those of you out there that don't know what Delta-8 THC is, think of it as like you know, Delta-9, think of it as THC light. It, it's sort of the, uh, the less stringent or less potent um, cousin to, uh, to Delta-9. So you know, if, if Delta-9 gets you 100% high, then Delta-8 gets you about 35% high. Uh, a lot of people say it comes with less anxiety, it comes with you know, kind of a mellower high, but it's still psychotropic. So what's been happening out there is that people have been extracting uh, hemp, which is technically legal under the Farm Bill, uh, as long as you're below 0.03% THC on a dry weight basis, then your crop is considered to be hemp. If you're above 0.03%, then you're considered to be cannabis or marijuana. So hemp is legal. It's legal everywhere. It was removed from the Controlled Substances Act completely in the 2018 Farm Bill. And when it was... There was a great deal of question at the time of, okay, does that mean that anything that's now derived from hemp is legal? Because technically hemp, you know, gave a, a definition of what it is. Um, the Congress, you know, put it into the Farm Bill and carved it away from the Controlled Substances Act. At that point in time, you know, uh, the FDA chairman, Scott Gottlieb, went in front of Congress and said, hey, guys, I don't know if you know what you just did, but you just legalized all phytocannabinoids out of hemp. Well, at the time, no one really thought anything of it. At least congressional lawmakers didn't because they didn't have any idea that you could extract the hemp plant and take, you know, a ton of it and end up with still a very meaningful quantity of, you know, CBD, THC, CBN, etc. But the important one being THC, anything in the THC family. So for a year, a year plus, you know, about 13 months, everyone's been asking this question. And I know people from your former firm did, uh, Larry, and people from, from my firm did. And I actually wrote a white paper on it that you guys can see if you go to my LinkedIn profile. I did a, a paper called The DEA Has It Wrong Again. But my position on it was... The DEA's um, interim final rule got it dead wrong specifically because what they are saying was not law. What Congress said was they couldn't usurp congressional authority to make their own rules. So essentially what they were opining is what we call in the law dicta, which is, you know, it's nice as a guide, but it's not law. So this is the first time the DEA came out and admitted that they are wrong in that interim final rule. So that hopefully sets the stage, but, you know, let, let's, let's discuss for a minute because this has got major implications. That's a great point you made, Rob, and, and it's a great uh, explanation of the background of everything for our listeners. And it does raise some uh, very, very big, important points here. And the biggest, most important point, I think, is the government's efforts to try to regulate something that they don't know very much about. And this is a big problem in the industry all the way around. And, and the part that really upsets me the most about it is not so much that uh, we had uh, you know, cultivators and supporters of, of legalized hemp who said, oh, you know, tried to mislead Congress. This is a situation where Congress didn't do its homework and Congress didn't sit down and Congress didn't check it out. And the reason Congress didn't do this is because they've never been able to do it. By law, they're prohibited from going forward and, and educating any of themselves on this. They, they can't do officially funded government testing. They can't do so they sit there. It, it's it's kind of like the FDA saying, "We oh, we've never heard of a, a, a CBD edible before. My gosh, we can't possibly authorize this. We never even knew these existed. It, it's this willful ignorance uh, about the whole thing that really bothers me. So now you have first the government saying, okay, yes, fine, go forward. And yes, hemp that is 0.3% uh, or less and its constituent cannabinoids are all considered to be non-scheduled 
products. They're not on the controlled substance schedule. They're not considered illegal by the federal government. It's basically the same approach the government has to alcohol. So now we have all of this, but all of a sudden we start to run into a problem because people who are in the know and people who have become in the know in the industry, like you say, have discovered all of these different things that can be done with hemp, different uh, cannabinoids that are being discovered and and, and all sorts of things. And, and the truth is that there's probably much, much more still hidden in the plant that none of us know about yet. Uh, in my opinion, is to really unlock all of it, it it's going to require a legalization because I think we're going to start to ultimately need the type of financial resources and um, uh, technology that, that Big Pharma has. You know, whatever you're feeling about Big Pharma may be, if the, you know, if the idea behind CBD is to really make it a suitable medical product uh, and really be able to maximize its potential, I, I, I just don't see where any individual, even big companies, uh, will have the wherewithal to do that on the same level as big pharma. But, but again, you know, re- regardless of that point, uh, there are a lot of people out there who are, um, as you say, extracting out of legal hemp. And a lot of what they've discovered is, and, and you're absolutely right, Bob Hoban of the Hoban Law Group has been preaching this for years, that um, truth of the matter is you can pull quite a bit of THC out of what is otherwise legalized hemp. Uh, that means that, that the hemp overall is measured is 0.3% or less. But when you start extracting out of there, whether it's Delta 9, whether it's Delta 8, uh, whatever you might be extracting out of there, if you stockpile it and and uh, put it all together yes you can really have something that's a lot stronger you know I, I think that when we come out at the end of the day is at least for right now I appreciate the fact that the FDA is willing uh, the DEA is willing to acknowledge that um, hemp is legal and that hemp is therefore hemp and any of its constituent cannabinoids uh, are basically off limits to them and that's a very very important public acknowledgement by them uh, that we've been looking for for a long time because you never were quite sure with the DEA, especially, as you pointed out, Rob, it's its own version of, you know, independent rulemaking separate and apart from what the Constitution might say. Um, but I, I think that this is big. I think it's good. Um, and I think that, you know, this will allow people, it, it, this Delta 8 being as popular as it's becoming, this will now give manufacturers and uh, distributors the same level of confidence that they have when they sell CBD, knowing that it's been certified as coming from a plant with 0.3% or less. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, for the lay people out there that don't know this issue nearly as well as we do, Larry, you know, the analogy I try to give to people out there is that, you know, if you want to get, um, if you want gold, the best way to get it is from a gold mine. You know, you go in and you extract excess where the highest concentrations of gold are. Well, if you want THC, then you go to, you know, the marijuana plant where it's, you know, a 25, 30% THC plant. But if you want gold, you can still get it from a copper mine. You know, a copper mine, if you pulverize millions of pounds of rock, you're going to get a lot of copper out of there. But you're also going to get iridium and you're going to get um, platinum and you're going to get gold and silver. There are all these other trace metals in there that in, in a very, you know, if you were to pulverize a couple pounds of it, you're not going to get very much gold. But if you pulverize millions and millions of pounds of it, there's going to be a meaningful quantity in there that you're actually going to be able to extract and say, okay, well, let's, you know, figure out how, what to do with this as well. Well, that's what hemp is for THC. You know, it, it doesn't occur in very large quantities, but if you're actually extracting a ton of it. Now, the other thing that's really interesting, and this is something that, you know, Congress never, ever considered, is that you can actually take CBD and convert uh, CBD to THC Delta-8 and Delta-9. So if you're going to do that conversion process, then the question is whether or not that falls into the definition of being a synthetic. 
And if you're actually using a, uh, an organic process to do it, then technically there's nothing synthetic about it. You're just changing the molecular structure of a molecule so that it, it moves it from being um, CBD being non-psychotropic to THC being psychotropic, but you're doing it in a way that doesn't um, you know, fall within a category of, of, of being uh, synthetic in the process. So what we can expect here, you know, at least my takeaway is, if Congress actually fully realizes what the issue is now, then very likely they're going to go back and retroactively make a modification to the Farm Bill uh, and say, okay, we, we need to fix this so that, you know, we don't want psychotropic um, controlled substances that would otherwise be controlled, you know, out there fueling into uh, bodegas all over the country. And we've already seen the states act on this. We've already seen individual states, most of them have already tried to make uh, Delta 8 illegal. I'd expect that they'd say Delta 9 is still illegal. But technically, you know, now we've got to ask ourselves, well, who's got the, uh, the ability to do this? We've, we've already seen that states can be less restrictive than the federal government in passing uh, cannabis laws. And the question is, can they be more restrictive than the federal government? And I would argue that they probably can't. You know, usually the federal government is, is, is going to be the um, sort of the litmus test on this. If they want to be less restrictive, they can. If the federal government wants to pick it up and, and go down and slap the states around, they can, which they haven't done with cannabis. But in this case, are, are they going to say, hey, guys, this is not illegal by a federal standard. And can someone actually, you know, could one of our clients go out there and say, look, that's great you guys made it illegal at the state level, but it's legal at the federal level. So you can't tell me I can't make this. And that's what I'm waiting to see. Well, you know, that's an interesting point. And, and, and that's a point, you know, we have to consider, you know, my take on it has always been that, you know, much like alcohol, the states are pretty much free to determine within their borders uh, whether or not they want to approve and allow right hemp cultivation, hemp extraction, hemp processing. I think that they've been given a little bit of leeway with respect to that. My concern where I see the issue coming up is what happens when, uh, because the, the, the second part of the hemp bill uh, in the, in the uh, 2018 Farm Bill, the second part of it is not just that it makes it legal, but that it expressly declares that no state may interfere with the interstate transportation. Now, if you're driving it from a processor in Washington to a customer in Illinois, and you can either drive 500 miles out of your way or you can go through Idaho, and the state of Idaho declares, not in our state, we say that this is illegal, and they pull you over, at that point, they've clearly crossed the line. Idaho doesn't seem to be bothered by that. Um, so my advice to anyone is stay out of Idaho. Um, at least for that purpose, but um, that's where it gets tricky. And, and I think that as you know, you try and put together a patchwork of laws across the country on what states are going to do with hemp, we're going to see. Ultimately, I, I, I would like to think that states are the ones that aren't approving or acting irrationally uh, because for better or for worse, and it's easy for us to sit there and make faces about it, but people are afraid of what they don't know. Uh, people are afraid of what they think they know, even if it's not true. And there's such a huge education gap right now for the public, again, because the federal government for so long has prohibited any kind of education at all. I mean, you know, we have kids who go through uh, all of our elementary school and high school public school systems and may not ever know that from the time the country was founded until the early 1900s, hemp was the largest cash crop in this country. And that in, uh, during World War II, uh, when Manila was, was uh, uh, blockaded, uh, they'd become our source of hemp. Uh, Illinois and Kentucky and a number of other states went back to hemp cultivation. And once again, 
got the United States all of the hemp it needs. This country has a very, very uh, proud history with hemp. Uh, and that's always been based on the idea that it's hemp and it's not marijuana and people are using it for hemp-related purposes. I just think that back in the day, uh, they either didn't have the uh, understanding and certainly not the technology uh, to be able to go in and pull the, the cannabinoids and the extracts out that we can now do. And, and ultimately, that's where things get tricky. And I think that puts a burden on the industry, Rob, that, you know, you have to have pure motives. If your idea is we're going to go in and sell you on this, but we're really going to treat it like that, then you know what? You're, you're going to you better expect to get burned because eventually the government will will catch up with it. You know, if you're going to say, look, we believe there's legitimate uses for CBD. We recognize that there can be some THC in it, but our goal is not we don't endorse the idea of stockpiling that THC to create a kind of, I don't even know, it's, that's not black, not gray, whatever kind of market it is of, of THC reserves. You know, and, and I think it's up to the industry to declare for itself what, what, what its standards are and to enforce those standards among its members. Yeah, I agree. And I don't think the uh, I don't think we've gotten to the bottom of this yet. And I think it's going to take some time before we actually do. Uh, and again, you know, lawmakers, uh, you know, don't always understand the question that they're being asked to opine on. I mean, we certainly have a far better understanding of this question than, than you know, any politician does. Uh, and, and even more so than probably 90 percent of the people in the campus industry. But with politicians, you know, they, they've got their own reasons for doing things. And as we saw again this week, um, you know, some really good reporting coming out of uh, both Forbes and coming out of um, Marijuana Moment, who broke the story, that now the Republicans are trying to put a uh, cannabis bill on the table. So, and, and by the way, a quick shout out to the guys at Marijuana Moment for, you know, those of you out there that don't know the work that, that Tom Angle and his team have been doing. They're breaking more and more stories than almost any other group out there on the cannabis front. And they're doing it with really accurate reporting coming out of D.C. So I don't know what their sources are or how they've ingratiated themselves so well to, uh, to, to get some of these scoops. But they're scooping the New York Times. They're scooping the Journal. They're scooping Forbes. They're scooping everyone out there that's covering cannabis. And they're doing it really effectively. So, you know, hats off to those guys and, and the reporting they're doing. I agree. Look, it would, uh, you know, the, the industry, like any industry, can, can never have enough good uh, media uh entities and, and companies that are interested in it and you know mj business has always been there now marijuana moment and a number of these and they do provide great resources for us and they should for everyone else too because we have to be an educated public as to this right that's being given to us uh so we make sure that we don't abuse it in a way uh that gives people motivation to try and take it away yeah th this this republican-led bill rob we talked about this a little bit before the show uh, you know I'm, I'm kind of split on it right on the one hand great. You know, let's get marijuana legal. I'm never going to be one of these people who says, well, you know, gee, the Republicans made it legal. So therefore, you know, somehow it's lost its meaning to me. Uh, we've talked about the fact that uh, uh, people on both sides of the aisle are very big proponents of marijuana. Um, and we've also talked about, and I think recognize the idea that probably the only reason that we don't have federally uh, legally mandated marijuana at this moment is due to the otherwise tremendous partisan gridlock that goes on in Washington, D.C., where it's impossible to get the right to vote for a bill proposed by the left and impossible to get the left to vote for a bill proposed by the right. And while I never want to, uh, you know, suggest uh, evil motives to anyone, I'm, I'm, you know, I think it's probably more than just a coincidence, unfortunately, given what we see going on in Congress these days, uh, that a Republican who felt strong enough about legalized marijuana to want to promote a bill didn't just simply agree to work on the bill that's already pending. And that's not to say that I want Schumer and the Democrats to get the credit. That's to say that if you have two competing bills, you're basically dividing 
uh, your potential support now along party lines. And the beauty of marijuana is it's supposed to cross those party lines. Um, but when a, a Democrat is given a choice to vote for a Republican bill or a Democrat bill, chances are they're going to vote party as will a Republican. So what I'd really like to see is if the sponsors of the Republican bill and Schumer and, and his co-sponsors can't get together and figure out a way to just come up with one bipartisan bill and get the work done already. Yeah, I agree with that. But what I'll say is that, you know, it doesn't matter what the House does. I think we both know that either bill is dead on arrival in the Senate. There aren't 60 votes right now to pass anything major. So anyone that actually really follows the industry politically understands that this is, you know, a distinction without a difference because it's really not going to change, you know, anything, a, a, the, the final uh, result anyway. Um, you know, what it has done, though, and this is kind of helpful to the industry, at least to, to the larger businesses, is it stem the tide of this really long, slow sell-off that's been happening in the public uh, cannabis sector? So if you look at all the cannabis stock prices, you know, over the last three or four days since Marijuana Moment broke this um, story, it, it's been the first time since probably March where you've seen the, the share prices of these stocks go back up, and it's happening as they're going into earnings season. So everyone's sort of watching right now, and you're getting some great earnings reports. You know, Curaleaf just reported north of $300 million in top-line revenue in the last quarter, which is now a run rate of, you know, well north of a billion dollars on an annualized basis. Um, so you're getting a lot of people that, uh, that are now taking notice. So sometimes a little bit of fanfare, doesn't matter, you know, what provides it, it can be good for the industry if it gets a lot of people to notice what's happening in the industry and gets more acceptance into the industry and gets more retail investors taking a look at the space. So whether you're a supporter of like the mom and pop organizations or you're a supporter of, you know, you're more of a, uh, um, a safe investor with bigger stock names, it, it's, uh, it's still helpful to drive the, uh, the process forward, to get us closer to legalization, which ultimately is the goal of, you know, both of us on the show. So we'll see. Well, with, with that, let's, let, let's move over and, and talk a little uh, Grateful Dead. I mean, obviously, like, we can talk politics and canvas all day, but you're right. Shakedown Street came out 40, uh, 43 years ago now, and uh, it's a... Uh, it's one for the ages. You get Fire on the Mountain coming out of that, Stagger Lee, Shakedown, I Need a Miracle, uh, you know, a couple of tunes that not too many people talk about too much in, um, in for the, I think, From the Heart of Me, and um, what else is on there? France, I think, is that right? Then um, you had a, a couple, you know, random ones like Serengeti, but, uh, but there was certainly, you know, a handful of, um, a handful of pretty big tracks on there, you know, specifically for me, Fire and Shakedown are, are about as big as they come. Well, I would say yes, in terms of, you know, presenting new Grateful Dead material, you know, clearly for me, Shakedown and Fire on the Mountain are the two major takeaways uh, from this album. Uh, yes, I, you know, there, it, it launched I Need a Miracle, which has become a very strong Bobby standard, but it's interesting, right? Good Lovin' is a cover that they had been playing for years and years, and they finally threw on an album, um, and it's, you know, as far as albums go, I think it's a fine version. You know, what I what I learned about France was that France was not written by Donna. France was written by... Um, Mickey. Mickey and Bobby and uh, maybe uh, Hunter. Maybe. And Hunter, that's yeah. right. Yep, it's the three of them. And, and whether they wrote it, you know, for Donna to sing or not, she wound up singing a lot of it. Um, and, you know, it's an interesting tune. Um, Serengeti is pretty much a uh, percussion piece. Yeah, it's the Rhythm Devils. Right, you know, doing their thing, and that's fantastic. Um, From the Heart of Me is a great, great tune. I really love that tune. You know, Donna sings it really nice, and I have to say it's certainly a Donna-sung tune that's probably um, one that I like more than the others, although I've I'd never heard it in concert and anything like that. And then you get Stagger Lee again, right? Stagger Lee is another old, 
you, know, you can Google Stagger Lee. There's 50 different stories behind it. And here they are throwing it on an album in the height of the disco era. I, I, I love that they did that. That's a great tune. Well, we, we've talked about Stagger Lee previously on the show. Yep. And one of the things that's great about Stagger Lee is it has, you know, it's very much a Caribbean Creole, um, you know, sort of junk canoe um, Bahamian song. But when you actually look at who uh, is listed as the credits on the writing of this one, it's, it's credited to Garcia and Hunter for the arrangement that they put on. So it's not, it's, I mean, everyone that's ever uh, taken a stab at the song has rewritten the words. I mean, it all follows the same theme, but they're following a theme that has, you know, slight differential on, you know, what happens to, uh, to, to Stagger Lee and, you know, what happens to, to Billy the Lion and... And so it's it's always interesting to see what different people's takes are on it, but uh, but it's one of those songs where I think there's a lot of people that are getting royalties from the writing credits of that song. Yeah, it looked good, rightfully so. I love that song. You know, it was one of the songs where you know you could pretty much always understand the lyrics and follow the story, and you know, it was you know who doesn't like a story like that, right? When the big bad bully gets his comeuppance this time from the woman, so yeah. all the better. Well, I love the, the the closing of that song too. is one of the most powerful, especially in the early, like, late '80s, early '90s. The way they'd stretch it out and, and give the bam ba bam ba bow din 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 bam ba bam ba bow. It's such a uh, a strong for a first set song. Had such a strong close. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. And and, and I I almost take this as a little inside joke for the dead that they threw all new Minglewood blues on there again, right? Because there's always the all new Minglewood blues. The all all really new Minglewood blues was on their first album. It's on this album. Yes. It shows it's it. like famous Ray's Pizza in New York. Right. Original Ray's, famous Ray's, brand new Ray's, Ray's Cousins Ray's. Yeah, yeah but, it's a, but, you know, but look, it's another studio version, and that's fine. And then, of course, if I had the world to give, which is, you know, a really, really sweet, beautiful tune that, uh, you know, I love listening to Jerry on. It's, it's a lot of fun and uh, a really, really good one. But, you know, to me, Shakedown Street was significant for two reasons. One, because at least on the album, and, and we heard it right at the very beginning when we started the show with the uh, the introduction to the song Shakedown Street. And if you've ever seen it in concert, it's a very, very powerful, you know, boom with Phil and Jerry all, and the drummers coming together at once to really launch it. And, it you know, it, it takes off and it just has a tremendous amount of energy. Uh, it fills the room and it, it's a great way to start a show or start a set. And it's even fun if you pick it up in the middle of the set. And yet here, when you hear it, you know, it's kind of almost got that disco bong, 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 you know, uh, I don't know how to describe it, sound that's that's very distinctive for that time of, you know, time of the... Very much a disco beat, 100% a disco right, beat. Right, 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 right. It is, and it, it just is... Um, it's so different from the way the song is actually played in concert, you know, that, that it, not that all the dead songs aren't to one degree or another, but some of them translate a little bit better, I think, from the album, you know, and keep true to, but I mean, to me, Shakedown Street is just always this just powerful, you know, it's, it's a powerful Jerry Anthem instead of, you know, a slow meandering Jerry Anthem. And, um, you know, it's just great the way they all pick up on it and they all join in at the right times. And, you know, Shakedown Street's always, if I go to a show and they play it, I, that's always going to be a good show. Well, word is me. on the uh, album that Mickey helped co-wrote, uh, co-write Shakedown Street. And, you know, he did because he loved the disco beats that were coming out from uh, the Bee Gees. And so that was the, um, you know, sort of the opening drum beat that he did was a Bee Gees drum beat uh, in the beginning of the song. Well, there's also some talk uh, that I've heard about over the years uh, where Hunter and uh, Donna suggest, if you listen carefully, that the opening of the song, dun, 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 is not that much different from three blind mice, three blind mice and they thought that Jerry might have been you know doing a little tongue in cheek there and kind of playing on an old 
uh, tune. And I have to say, I, I, I never heard that myself. I probably wasn't thinking about it at the time either. Uh, but when I read about that, I remember thinking, yeah, if you go back and listen to it, I suppose that could be there. And I just, I get a kick out of that, that, you know, uh, whether it's true or not, you know, Jerry's personality was such that many wouldn't put it, have pat, wouldn't have put it past him to be that kind of uh, clever or, or, you know, or, or funny when he was putting a song together. But boy, Shakedown Street just explodes. And then in the same way, I think that, you know, we could say about uh, Fire on the Mountain as well, right? And, and we're going to actually listen to a little clip of Fire on the Mountain at the end of the show on our way out for everybody. But to me, uh, Fire on the Mountain became such an important tune, not just because it meant that we just probably nine times out of ten heard a killer Scarlet Begonias, but because it is such an amazing tune and really stands on, a note, on its own. And again, it's another one of those tunes that Jerry didn't write. Mickey wrote it. I love that, that, you know, that, that, you know, everybody just, just... And you've heard the original Mickey, oh, right? yeah. you've heard the rap that he does, the, 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 the fireman, fireman, give me your dogs. Yes. 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 I've heard that version of it. And, uh, you know, love it. And as I recall, when the other ones were touring, he, he kind of slipped back into that version once or twice. But, uh, you know, to me, it's just, it's such a standard Garcia, you know, huge number, right? People would say, you know, the first notes of Scarlet Begonias, yes, 25 minutes of Jerry, right? Because you knew it was just, he was going to take those two tunes, jam the hell out of them. And he really took Fire on the Mountain, made it his own. There's some amazing, amazing versions of it out there. This obviously on the album uh, is, is, a, is a great studio version, but doesn't come close to capturing uh, the magnificence of the tune, even though it, it is fun to listen to. Um, my all-time five favorite Fire on the Mountain uh, is uh, the Egypt shows in 1978 when they came out of the Olin Aga Reed into Fire on the Mountain and then came out of Fire on the Mountain and transitioned into Ico Ico uh, right in front of the pyramids and this whole thing. And it's just, it's uh, the, the transition between the Fire on the Mountain into the Ico uh, is, is, is to me the, the ultimate definition of space, uh, what space should really sound like. Uh, and space in front of, you know, pyramids that are 5,000 years old and who knows what's going on inside of them while the Grateful Dead are playing. And, you know, as long as it's not another one of those things with Brandon Fraser and Rachel Weiss, and all of a sudden the mummies wake up and go wild, although if anything was going to wake them up, it would be that. But yeah, those are just great tunes. And it's just, it's, it's just wonderful, you know, to, to be able to go back to their source and see what they're all about and where they came from. And it's just amazing. But since I know we're going to run short on time today and I want to make sure we get all of this in. The one thing I was going to say is that the, to me that what the album signified is another slight transition in the playing style of the Grateful Dead, right? We talked about it going from Primal Dead to kind of American folk and, and blues and American beauty and uh, uh, working man's. And then with Disco Dead, it was kind of like, you know, they were going in another ev direction that it seemed to me at least they kind of followed through on and go to heaven, the same kind of, Almost, and, and, and even their next album. But so are the Rolling Stones. I mean, they're doing Some Girls and Tattoo You, and like, you know, you look at the, uh, the, that same era, there's a lot of bands that were like straight rock and roll bands or blues bands. I mean, the, the, the Stones to me are, you know, a pure blues band for years. And then they went into like a straight disco phase that was, uh, you know, that, and by the way, I love that phase of their catalog as well. So it's not just the dead that we're doing. I think the Beatles are still together. They probably would have gone into a disco phase too. Well, and, and we forgot the most important part of all of it, which is who the producer of the album is, of course. And that's, you know, we, we can't talk about... Lowell George, man. Our good buddy Lowell George from Little Feet. And to this day, I've probably told this story on this show before, but my all-time favorite, 
favorite Grateful Dead story is the story little George Tones talks about the first time he showed, where was this, at their Front Street recording studios, and he walks in, and the whole gang is all gathered there, and he said he walked in, and he saw everybody down on their hands and knees on the floor, and he couldn't figure out what was going on, and they said, oh, we just had a huge tray of cocaine, and one of the guys walked by and knocked it off, and it fell into this shag carpeting, and they were all down there storing it up, and so somebody said to little George, what did you? He goes, what do you mean? I dived down there on the floor with him, and you know, started snorting it up with him. And I, you know, right. I love that story. Any guy that can popularize weed, whites, and wine uh, is certainly going to get down on his hands and knees and start snorting blow off a shag carpet. No doubt, even if unfortunately it may have all led to his early demise. And, you know, that was, we, we, we can talk about him one day because he's a whole episode all by himself. But he is the producer of this album. And to me, that just makes it a very special, unique album and gives it a great sound. Um, so, uh, you know, the vote for me is... Excellent album. Would rather hear Shakedown Street in concert, but every now and then uh, it's great to hear them on the album like that and, you know, really get a chance to kind of uh, play around with them. Moving on really quickly. So now, right, so transitioning there into kind of like, you know, the end of the 70s, early 80s. So now we're going to drag you back to the beginning of the 70s for a minute and and, uh, highlight a show that's 50 years old today. And really, um, as much as any show from that era, really kind of represents the pivot point between Primal Dead and the, uh, the the new you know Americana version of the Grateful Dead, and you know given that it's uh, towards the end of 1971, uh, the Americana version is, is strongly uh, flexing its muscles and uh, you know makes up the majority of the tunes. Uh, but for me, what makes this album, uh, this show, I mean, uh, this release just so incredibly special is that right in the middle of playing in the band and dealing Jack Straw and Loser and beat it on down the line, all of a sudden we see the boys completely shift gear out of that period of time, go back, throw in their 1968-69 hats and come out with a dark star that's just tremendous and just keeps building and building and building. And then, I don't know how else to describe it because you know there's so many things that you imagine the Grateful Dead coming into out of dark star. St. Stephen, the 11, millions of different possible combinations. And on this night, they headed right into it. Dan, go ahead and play it. So, Rob, here's the million-dollar question. How do you go from the depths of an incredible Dark Star jam into a cowboy song? Because nothing says psychedelia like Marty Robbins. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. That's great. It's such a great pairing of just taking, as you said, the depths of psychedelia and the Dark Star and then coming back out and throwing a classic Marty Robbins El Paso into the mix. It's terrific. The other thing I love about this show also, Larry, is... uh, the fact that, you know, right in the middle of the second set before they go into, um, you know, the, the going down the road, not fade away, Johnny Be Good, 
they threw in a China Cat jam, like a, a thirty second China Cat jam that with no China Cat anywhere in the set, just you know, just very very clearly a uh, thirty second China Cat riff, which is a really unique thing as well because you just don't see that in too many other shows. There's a couple things in this one where you're like scratching your head, going, "That was definitely different." No doubt, and and just to to finish up on that other thought for a minute, you know that when they're done with El Paso, they just slip right back into. Uh, Dark Star. We're just going to quickly uh, say goodbye to uh, Rob Hunt, who's hopping off. Uh, Rob, we'll talk to you next week. Safe travels. So uh, we'll finish up here with this. But uh, yeah, you go back from El Paso back into Dark Star. So it's not just, oh, we're having playing this great show, Dark Star into the Cowboy Jam, and then off for the rest of the, the show like that. No, no. They they bring it specifically right back into Dark Star, uh, and then they drop off into Casey Jones, and eventually one more Saturday night. Uh, and then the, the second set is very much a uh, uh, more of a uh, you know modern day if you will dead set with uh, uh, the tunes that we all know and love and uh, uh, and go forward including a me and Bobby McGee which is kind of you know unique for that time era and, and we didn't get to hear that very often either way it's a great show 11 15 71 it's 50 years old today um, Grateful Dead the the Road Trip series volume three number two uh, you can find it anywhere I'm sure it's online as well. Uh, listen to the Dark Star, El Paso, Dark Star, Casey Jones. You'll love it. If you have time, listen to the whole show. The whole show. Uh, you'll love that too. So a lot covered today, a lot of great stuff. Uh, but before we blow out of here and leave you with uh, one final taste of uh, Disco Dead, um, I'm going to do a little bit of, uh, I guess, what in this industry they call tease, what I hope is going to be our show next week, and if not next week, certainly within a week or so. Uh, we, we've had uh, a, a brief introductory discussion about this year's Grateful Dead box set, Listen to the River, the uh, seven-show compilation from St. Louis in 71, 72, and 73. Um, but we haven't really spent a lot of time talking about necessarily the significance of St. Louis to the Grateful Dead and some of the great things that happened to them in that town and while they were there that, that we think endeared them to the city and I would like to think vice versa. But the release of this box set has brought forth a whole bunch of attention to all of these other little events that happened in St. Louis and around that time uh, that have connections to the Grateful Dead. And David Lemieux himself on uh, one of his podcasts when he was introducing this box set to the dead world uh, even made mention of something that up to this point I think may have just been more of an urban legend and rumor. And that is the Grateful Dead showing up and making an appearance uh, at a local bar mitzvah party uh, that happened to be taking place in the ballroom of the hotel that they were staying that staying at, I'm presuming before a show started, but possibly after, who knows what their timing was. It's out there, and I had actually heard a story about this 30, 35 years ago, uh, but was never able to independently verify it myself. Uh, and now here it is being talked about by David Lemieux. Somebody found an old newspaper article that talks about it. Uh, but we here on the uh, Deadhead Cannabis Show are going to scoop the world and really get to the bottom and next week we will be interviewing not only uh, an individual who was at the show, a very, very credible young man, uh, maybe not so young anymore, but he certainly was at the time, and uh, he'll be able to uh, uh, give us all the details of it. But even better than that, uh, we are hopefully also going to have on the show uh, a gentleman who at the time was a member of the local high school band that was, in fact, the regular entertainment for the evening and was able to interact with the Grateful Dead on the stage that had been set up uh, for this high school band, uh, rock and roll band, to perform 
uh, for the uh, people who were coming to the bar mitzvah party. So uh, it's going to be a great story. Uh, it's the dead show that you've probably never heard about, and uh, we're going to bring it to you. So uh, please be sure to tell your friends and don't miss it. Uh, listen in and uh, it'll be a good time. So uh, once again, to all of our listeners this week, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. As always, we really, really appreciate it. Please tell your friends. Please tell your family. Please tell uh, you know anybody out there who likes the Grateful Dead or likes marijuana. Or, uh, we're easy to find, mjbulls.com and lots of other good other places. We will be back next week with Rob Hunt back again. Jim Marty should be back from the road, so we will uh, be getting his, his input in again as well. Uh, but otherwise, uh, as we sign off here, we're going to leave you uh, with the Grateful Dead playing Fire on the Mountain on the Shakedown Street album, and you'll have a chance to really hear, once again, that Shakedown sound, and then uh, just go listen to any uh, Scarlet Fire from uh, later on in the Dead era and compare the two, and you'll really be amazed. Have a great week, everyone. This is Larry Mishkin signing off, reminding you, please enjoy your cannabis response. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.